0: From Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: I want to be remembered as a as an advocate for the urban poor, as an advocate for poor people of color in the South Bronx in public housing, and someone who who never forgot where he came from. That even when I left the South Bronx, the South Bronx never left me.
0: That's Richie Torres. He's a freshman congressman from New York, representing most of the South Bronx. And at just 33 years old, he's a rising star in the Democratic Party. Torres made history last November when he and fellow New York representative Mondaire Jones became the first openly gay black man ever elected to Congress. In his first year on Capitol Hill, Torres has become an outspoken advocate on issues of poverty, housing, and mental health. He's also emerged as a staunch defender of Israel a position that has garnered some criticism from his fellow progressives. Torres talks to me this week about his political philosophy, poverty, and why he supports Israel. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms, since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause.
1: new Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.
0: Hey folks, I hope you've been listening to the newest podcast from CAFE, now and then co-hosted by star historians Heather Cox Richardson and Joanne Freeman. Tonight, Thursday, July 15th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, there will be a live taping of the next episode of their podcast. It'll be streamed live on CAFE's Facebook, to RSVP, go to cafe.com slash live. And if you miss it, you can catch that episode of Now and Then wherever you get your podcasts next week. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Evelyn, who writes, I hope you can comment on the hearing regarding the lawsuit in Michigan. I have listened to a good bit of it today. In my unqualified opinion, the complainant's legal team is using a defense much like the president and his cronies use in the court of public opinion. It reminds me of the because I said so reason my parents used to give when they didn't feel like arguing. So you call yourself unqualified to render an opinion, but your opinion is pretty good here, Evelyn. Of course, you're talking about the hearing that took place on Monday of this week relating to a sanctions issue against Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood and some other of Trump's election lawyers who brought a series of lawsuits around the country, including in Detroit, in federal court, over alleged voter fraud in those elections, seeking to overturn those elections. As you know by now, every single one of those suits, say perhaps one, depending on how you consider it, failed and failed miserably. And lawyers for Detroit are seeking sanctions against Trump's election lawyers on the grounds that they didn't obey ethics rules in bringing those suits. And so the proceeding lasted a pretty long time, I think upwards of six hours. So congratulations on getting through a lot of it. And the basic question that the district court judge, Judge Linda Parker, asked was, quote, should an attorney be sanctioned for his or her failure to withdraw allegations the attorney came to know were untrue? Is that sanctionable behavior? The judge also sort of answered her own question at one point in the hearing when she said, quote, I don't think I've ever seen an affidavit that makes so many leaps. This is really fantastical. So my question to counsel here is, how could any of you as officers of the court present this affidavit? The judge also made the point that the lawsuit and the affidavits attached to the lawsuit should have been withdrawn when the Electoral College confirmed Biden's victory on December 14th of last year. The judge asked, why did the plaintiffs not recognize this lawsuit as moot and dismiss it on that date? And as you point out, Evelyn, time after time after time, the lawyers had no answer, with the possible exception of Lynn Wood, who said repeatedly and somewhat humorously to my ear, that he had nothing to do with the drafting of the complaint. He said it again and again. I had nothing to do with the drafting of the complaint. I was not involved with it in any way. Raises the question, of course, why was his name on the complaint? He didn't ask for it to be withdrawn. There was a debate back and forth about whether or not Linwood had given permission to use his name. And then there was another discussion about whether or not Linwood had, in some other proceeding, in some other jurisdiction, in some other court, had boasted that he had been involved in the Detroit litigation. All in all, it was a bit of a circus and a bit of a mess. So I'll make a couple of quick comments. I think it's clear that the judge will impose some kind of sanction here. It could be a monetary sanction. It could be a referral to bar authorities. And you know the irony here is that Donald Trump got away with lying again and again and again in public forums, at rallies, on television, in print interviews, and there was not much that anybody could do about it. And his lawyers may actually face some penalty for engaging in that kind of lying or misrepresentation by omission for doing those same things in court. We've already seen that Rudy Giuliani, Trump's one of Trump's lawyers, has had his bar license suspended in two different jurisdictions. And here you have Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell and others. By the way, the other interesting thing is some of the representations made by Sidney Powell and the other lawyers in the election cases were so outrageous and so far-fetched that the Trump team itself distanced themselves from Sidney Powell. That's a red flag if you ever saw one before. But importantly, I wanna mention again a distinction that Joyce Vance and I talked about on the Cafe Insider podcast. And that is, it is one thing to make, you know, creative, far-fetched legal arguments to try to get the law to fit some claim that you have. And maybe it's a claim that's never been made before or articulated in a particular way before. That's probably not generally going to be sanctionable. So claims that clearly seem to go against settled law or statute or constitutional provision, although they may be sort of out of left field, generally speaking... The consequence of that is you just lose your case. On the other hand, what was being focused on here is time after time after time, factual assertions were being made in affidavits and otherwise that were not just not backed up, but as the judge points out over and over again, there was literally no vetting of claims that on their face should have been challenged by good faith lawyers. And that didn't happen here. By the way, by the end of the hearing, Sidney Powell, who was not in good standing with this judge and with this court, doubled down on the submissions that were made. She said, quote, we have practiced law with the highest standards. And then she says, and this is kind of remarkable, shows she doesn't know how to read the room, quote, we would file these same complaints again. We welcome an opportunity to prove our case. No court has ever given us that opportunity, end quote. That seems to have been an error. So the original Kraken lawyers did not do a great job in representing Donald Trump's campaign. And then the lawyers that the Kraken lawyers hired also did not do a great job in connection with this proceeding earlier this week. <laughs> and perhaps my favorite comment of all was a tweet posted by lawyer Bradley Moss, who wrote, quote, All of the lawyers in the hashtag Kraken hearing owe the court reporter a drink. Multiple drinks. End quote. This question comes in an email from Helene. Question, can you talk about subpoenas? Subpoenas. I thought by definition they were not optional. But during the Trump administration, they seemed to be. No consequences for ignoring. But what about now? Everyone talks about Democratic Congress and their subpoena power. Can they actually be ignored by Republicans and even Trump? What are the consequences? Why call it a subpoena if it can't be enforced? Well, Helene, those are great questions. They've been asked for a number of years now. And I think part of the confusion is that people are conflating different kinds of subpoenas. So ordinarily, even lay people understand, That in a criminal investigation or a criminal case, when a subpoena is issued, that there can be a basis for the recipient of the subpoena to make a motion, what's known as a motion to quash, to say the subpoena is in some way faulty or doesn't apply to them or is onerous. And then that gets adjudicated by a court. And the court decides whether or not the subpoena is enforceable. In almost all cases, it would be. And then the consequence for the person who does not comply with the subpoena even after that is contempt of court, which carries with it a visit to jail. And there have been lots and lots of famous cases, including those involving controversially journalists who have decided to just defy a subpoena from the Department of Justice or from some other prosecutor, and they sometimes go to jail for it. So that's why a lot of people ask, well, why isn't that happening in the cases that you were referring to? So there's subpoenas that are issued in criminal cases that are technically from grand juries that are convened by prosecutors, what I just described. And then there are congressional subpoenas. Congressional subpoenas, although they carry the same name, have a different kind of flavor to them. First, when congressional subpoenas are issued to the executive branch, there has been a long, long history of back and forth and negotiation and accommodation between two co-equal branches of government. It's not like, you know, a federal grand jury trying to subpoena a witness in a securities fraud case. This is an attempt, in the kinds of cases you're referring to, where Congress is trying to get information from the White House or from an executive agency. And there often are real defenses with respect to the scope of the information being requested, executive privilege, deliberative process privilege. And all of those things have been asserted by White Houses and administrations of both parties, Republicans and Democrats. Now, some assert them more in good faith than others, but everyone asserts them. Unlike in criminal cases, courts are really loathe to get involved, to be the third co-equal branch of government mediating a fight between the other two co-equal branches of government. They don't like to do it. Justice Roberts and others have pointed out over and over again that, generally speaking, there is some kind of accommodation that's reached. In the investigation that I've talked about on the show before with respect to politicization of the Justice Department back in 2007, the Judiciary Committee that I served served a number of subpoenas on executive branch officials and former executive branch officials. And there was a back and forth. And ultimately, under terms that were mutually agreeable, some testimony was taken. That we've also seen, even in recent times, happen with the former White House counsel, Don McGann. So that's one point about how they're different. They're just sort of of a, of a different nature and the fight's a little bit different. And then second, even in a case where there's no excuse for noncompliance with a subpoena, there's not really the same enforcement mechanism. In the criminal case, you would have contempt of court. There are deputy US marshals who have guns. There are jails that exist. And so you can incarcerate somebody for contempt of court for defiance of a subpoena. Now, on the congressional side, there's been some talk about this, but contempt of Congress is a bit more toothless than contempt of court. I'm not aware that Congress, the House of Representatives or the Senate, even has a facility like a jail to put someone who unlawfully defies a subpoena. Also, it's not clear what procedure they would follow, who would go out and do it. Is this something the Capitol Police officers can do, Sergeant-at-Arms can do? It's just a very complicated, tricky, messy thing that has not been done, at least in a long, long, long time, if ever. So I understand your frustration and I understand a lot of people's frustration. Congressional subpoenas are a different kind of animal. It's a different kind of fight and there's not much enforcement mechanism. This question comes in an email from Andrea who writes, my son recently graduated from law school and I couldn't be prouder. There are zero lawyers in our family. So he is a true pioneer. He has a job starting in September and is currently studying for the bar exam. He actually left his apartment to come back home to study. He spends just about every day studying, and as the test draws nearer, I can tell his stress level is getting higher. I'm hoping you can offer some advice on how to stay calm and confident in the face of this impossible-to-know-everything high-stakes test. Love your show, and thanks in advance if you can offer some support. Sincerely, James's mom. Well, first of all, Andrea, congratulations to James. Congratulations to you, and now you have a family lawyer for the first time—or I guess very, very soon. Uh, the good news is you've already indicated in your email that James is doing the right thing. He's studying. It takes a lot of study. That was true in my day. I assume that's still true in modern times, even though the bar exam has probably changed a little bit since when I was in law school. A couple other observations, and maybe this gives some comfort. You know, you refer to it as a impossible to know everything, high stakes test. I think that's half right. Impossible to know everything. Surely. There are lots and lots of things on the bar exam that people did not take classes in in law school, and you just got to learn it. Whatever service you use to get tutored on, questions on the bar exam and topics on the bar exam, you just got to suck it up and study. With respect to high stakes, I have a slightly different view of that. First of all, the most important thing to remember about the bar exam, and obviously everyone knows this, it's pass-fail. Unlike the SAT, the ACT, or the LSAT, or, or other exams that you're trying to do really, really well on, Somebody once said to me, I think when I was approaching the bar exam many years ago, the key to victory is to be the person who passes by one point, because it doesn't matter if you crush the exam or if you barely pass. The other thing I'll say is I felt terrible when I came out of the bar exam and it took some time to find out the results. You know, I was a pretty good student throughout school and, and graduate school. And so I was used to coming out of an exam feeling like I gotten most of the questions right. I did not feel that way after the bar exam. And if they're scored anything like they were back in my day, you have room to get many, many questions wrong and still comfortably pass the bar exam. So if James takes it and doesn't feel good about it, don't worry about it. I felt the same way. And you can still pass handily. And then the final point I'll make is it's not make or break. Obviously, at some point you want to pass the bar exam, unlike some other things for which the consequences of failure are pretty terrible in most cases, and with respect to most employers, if you fail the bar exam the first time, you can take it again in a few months. And- no harm, no foul. And there are lots of smart people in the world, including those who have graduated from great law schools in close to the top of their class who have failed the bar exam. You don't want it to happen. You don't want to take it again, of course, but I just don't think it's as high stakes as everyone makes it out to be. So James, good luck. I have every confidence you're going to do well. And if you would, Andrea, keep us posted. And to all the other people, by the way, in the country who are taking the bar exam soon, I wish you luck as well. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact-check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking... What does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com. That's mintmobile.com. Slash Preet. Cut your wireless bill to fifteen bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. Forty five dollar upfront payment required, equivalent to fifteen dollars a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above forty gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. My guest this week is Richie Torres. He's a freshman congressman from New York, representing the South Bronx. His congressional district is, by some estimates, the poorest in America. Torres got an early start in politics. When he was elected to the New York City Council in 2013, he was the youngest ever elected New York City official. While often aligned with progressive Democrats in Washington, Torres treads his own path. I'm joined by the congressman to talk about the Bronx, mental health, and how to address poverty in our country. Congressman Richie Torres, thanks for making the time to be on the show.
1: It is an honor to be here.
0: So i wanted to speak to you for a long time. I my first question, I guess, is, you're a freshman, as they say, in the House of Representatives. Does it ever feel weird still to be referred to as congressman?
1: It does. You know, I, I spent most of my life in poverty, so the experience of becoming a member of Congress is surreal on its own. Um, if you had said to me that I would become a member of Congress during an infectious disease outbreak and witness an insurrection against the U.S. Capitol during the Electoral College vote count and then vote to impeach an outgoing president and all of that would happen within the first two weeks, I would have said that sounds like fiction. Bad fiction. It sounds like bad fiction. It sounds like bad fiction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, But it dawned on me that I was a congressman when I came home from orientation, freshman orientation, and I had dinner with my mother. And she said, this is the first time I'm having dinner with a congressperson. And that put a smile on my face.
0: But This is not your first elective office. You were a member of the New York City Council. How does congressman sound and feel compared to council member?
1: It, it, It matters. You matter when you're a member of Congress. You matter far more to far more people and you deal with a much wider range of issues not only locally here in new york city but uh, nationally and internationally um, you know you're part of the most one of the most exclusive clubs in the world the most powerful legislature in the world and you know in the history of the united states congress there have been about 130 latino members and about 160 black members And none of them were openly LGBTQ until I was sworn in on January 3rd. So every time I set foot on the House floor, I cannot help but feel the weight of history on my shoulders.
0: So to recap, as people may know, you were the first ever openly gay Afro-Latino member of Congress. Does that matter to you? And does that matter to your constituents? And if so, how much?
1: It's not everything, but it certainly matters. Um, You know, I I take pride in belonging to the Democratic caucus in the House. Uh, 70% of the Democratic caucus consists of people of color, women, and members of the LGBTQ community. I think we are a caucus that increasingly is every bit as diverse as America itself. I think it's in our interest to have a government that reflects the mosaic of America as a multiracial, racial multi-ethnic, LGBTQ-inclusive democracy. And it's important to have Americans from every walk of life uh, see themselves represented in government, to feel inspired to run for public office themselves.
0: Yeah. You know, something you said struck me. Given the diversity of the Democratic caucus, do you think it is naturally the case that it's harder for Nancy Pelosi— to organize and lead her caucus than it is for the Republicans to lead theirs?
1: Yes, I, I, I would say a genuine political party is much, much more unwieldy than a cult of personality around Donald Trump.
0: So, so that makes them easier to lead as long as they're purging the people who are not in that cult, like Liz Cheney?
1: She's the exception, but uh, for the overwhelming majority of Republicans, their operating principle seems to be absolute obedience to their Lord and Savior, Donald Trump.
0: I, I want to ask you one parochial question before I get... To your congressional district. Uh, People may not be aware, and we'll talk maybe about some city politics later as well, because New York is very important. (laughs) At least people like you and me think so. The city council did not used to be subject to term limits until fairly recently in New York's history. Term limits, a good thing or a bad thing?
1: I have a nuanced view. Uh, The legislature certainly should have more terms than the executive. But I do ask myself, you know, there should come a point when elected officials should learn the art of exiting gracefully. You know, if I become a shadow of my former self in a few decades, then I ought to move on and I ought to create space for the next generation of leadership to emerge. So I feel like there's a balance to be struck between institutional mem- memory and, and novelty and a new generation of leadership.
0: Well, that's interesting. You know, when I worked in the Senate, there was a lot of chafing on the part of younger members of that body. Because the way to get seniority, the way to get a chairmanship, the way to have influence, was simply the passage of time and the length of your tenure there, as opposed to, you know, whatever skills you might have or energy you might have. To the young folks, and I put you in that category—you're 33—and without naming names to get people in trouble with the speaker, is there sort of a collective frustration about how assignments are made and about how younger members of Congress wield power and, and how? They're organized around seniority and age?
1: There's certainly frustration with a system that excessively rewards seniority regardless of of merit. Um, But one would expect a freshman member like me to be critical of a seniority-based system. You know, I often refer to Congress as a gerontocracy. Um, One of my colleagues made the observation to me that all but two of the Democratic committee chairs selected by the caucus are at or above the age of 70. Uh, so there is a shocking lack of age diversity in, in the committee leadership of the Democratic caucus.
0: Do you think that's shifting? I mean, I sort of anecdotally, I haven't done an analysis, but there's you. There's a number of seemingly young members who have been recently elected in 2020 and in 2018. Are you aware of there's a trend towards younger
1: There have been attempts to create leadership opportunities for new members of Congress. So one example is myself. I was appointed as the vice chair of the Homeland Security Committee. And I am the freshman representative in weekly meetings with the speaker. These weekly meetings are referred to as crescendo. So the freshman class has the same seat at the table as the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. And, and the other powerful caucus in the U.S. Congress, so there have been attempts to ensure that freshmen have a greater voice uh, in the decision making of the caucus. I mean, I, I'm pleased with my ability to effectuate change within the caucus.
0: So you represent New York's 15th district, the South Bronx. Can you describe It's a very interesting district for a lot of reasons. And I want to talk about it and give you a chance to to explain to listeners what your district is like, what the makeup is, and how you feel about it.
1: So the South Bronx is often said to be the poorest congressional district in America. Uh, we are ground zero for racially concentrated poverty. We were hit the earliest and the hardest by COVID-19. More than 5,000 Bronx residents lost their lives. And more than half the residents in the South Bronx pay more than half their income for their rent. And that's before you factor in the cost of Food and transportation, utilities and healthcare. Uh, So to live in the Bronx is often to struggle to survive, to put food on the table and pay the rent and keep your families afloat. At the same time, I think of the South Bronx as the essential congressional district. It's the home of essential workers who put their lives at risk during the peak of the pandemic so that the rest of the city could safely shelter in place. And I see it as my central mission to ensure that those essential workers, who are disproportionately women of color, have a fighting chance at a decent and dignified life. You know, when I won the primary in June of 2020, I publicly said that this moment belongs as much to my mother as it does to me. And that the Bronx is full of single mothers like mine, who have struggled and suffered and sacrificed so that their children can have a better life. And so the the question I ask myself every morning is Am I doing right by the essential workers and powerful mothers of the South Bronx?
0: What's the racial and ethnic makeup of your district?
1: Overwhelmingly Latino and African American. Uh, There is a a small white population, but it's mostly Latino and African American. And then among Latinos, it's mostly uh, Puerto Rican and Dominican. It's historically a Puerto Rican district. It's becoming increasingly dominican Uh, but the the bronx has long been a sanctuary for immigrants you know at the beginning of the 20th century it was a sanctuary for jewish immigrants and italian immigrants and irish immigrants Uh, and then then we saw a wave of albanian immigrants uh, and now it's home to to many latino immigrants
0: were you surprised or are people surprised to learn according to various analyses that the poorest congressional district in the country is in new york city And not someplace like Mississippi or Arkansas, which are thought of as relatively more impoverished states?
1: No, because, you know, I represent a densely populated area with heavier concentrations of poverty. So, you know, it's worth noting that urban poverty is different from rural poverty, but you would expect much heavier concentrations of poverty in a densely populated area like the Bronx, the South Bronx.
0: What's the mood in your district? With respect to how the government is dealing with problems, particularly COVID, given the makeup of so many of the folks is essential to the COVID response?
1: Hopeful. Uh, Even though people are struggling, people are hopeful about President Biden, about a Democratic Congress, about the American Rescue Plan. You know, the centerpiece of the American Rescue Plan was the child tax credit. Um, and no policy did more and would do more to lift the South Bronx out of poverty than the child tax credit which cut child poverty by fifty percent. so the the dominant mood is one of hopefulness.
0: You have referred to your district as the Bible belt of New York City. What do you mean by that?
1: Historically, so you know even though we think of New York City as the progressive capital and as the birthplace of the LGBTQ civil rights movement, the Stonewall Uprising. The Bronx had a long tradition of socially conservative Democrats uh, who were vehemently anti-LGBTQ. and One of them was a man by the name of Ruben Diaz Sr. He was my main opponent when I ran for Congress in 2020. He was known to be the voice and face of homophobia in New York state politics in the 1990s. He said the Gay Olympics would lead to the spread of AIDS. In 2011, he was the only Democrat in the state Senate, the New York State Senate, to vote against marriage equality. And two years ago, he said the city council is controlled by a homosexual cabal, uh, to which I jokingly replied, that's the most accurate thing you've ever said, <laughs> as a card-carrying member of the Velvet Mafia. Um, but despite his odious views, the conventional wisdom held that Ruben Diaz Sr., was well positioned to win the congressional seat in the South Bronx because he has been a brand name in Bronx politics longer than I've been alive.
0: For a long time, that's true.
1: For a long time, he's been a giant and has a, a well-oiled machine in the South Bronx. And people thought I was going to lose by double digits. Now the outcome was double digit, uh, but but I, I I won by double digits. I, I defeated Ruben Diaz. So decisively that I sent him into retirement.
0: And how'd you do that?
1: Knocking on doors and telling my story. And even though, you know, people thought that the electorate in the South Bronx is much older. The median voter is at or above the age of 55. And two thirds of the electorate are female. So mostly Latinas and African-American women. And... People took, you know, the the political establishment took for granted that those voters would naturally gravitate toward Ruben Diaz Sr. And I thought differently. I thought those voters would hunger for a new generation of leadership in the South Bronx and would see in me their own child and grandchild, would see in me the embodiment of their highest hopes and aspirations for their own children and grandchildren. And my basic intuition about the electorate of the South Bronx uh, was vindicated by the outcome.
0: You have a very particular kind of district. There are 435 of them around the country. Some of them have similarities. There are probably similarities between your district and others in other parts of the country. But every district is unique. And every state is unique. And I wonder how you think about this question that goes around in Democratic circles, where there's a lot of frustration and anger, in some cases contempt, towards A Democratic senator like Joe Manchin, who comes from a particularly conservative state that went for Trump by like a million points, the number in front of me, or Kirsten Cinema from Arizona, and they get criticized by Democrats for not being progressive enough. Some people respond and say, Well, look at where they're from. That's what they reflect. How do you think about them? And how do you think about the necessity for you to hew to the sort of, you know, politics and concerns of your own district?
1: My criticism of Senator Manchin is not that he's not progressive. I mean, He's entitled to hold whatever views he wishes. He's entitled to reflect the sensibilities and views of his constituents. My issue is that he is maintaining a status quo, i.e. the filibuster, that derails democracy, that essentially disenfranchises uh, communities like mine. You no, know, n- nowhere is the abuse of the filibuster more egregious than on the subject of gun safety. Right? In a rational world, every gun would be registered and safely stored. Every gun owner would be licensed and trained. Every gun sale would be subject to a background check. But there's nothing rational about a political system that enables one U.S. senator from a state smaller than my congressional district to filibuster gun safety at the expense of 330 million Americans.
0: And you feel that the filibuster on this issue is the most egregious, more egregious even than the filibuster with respect to voting rights?
1: Oh, that's, uh, that's uh, although in the case of voting rights, I fear that whatever we might pass, uh, the Supreme Court is intent on striking down, but it's egregious on several fronts. Um, The filibuster has made the Senate a graveyard for voting rights enforcement, immigration reform, LGBTQ equality, gun safety, criminal justice reform. You name an issue, you name a cause, and it has likely died at the hands of the filibuster. And keep in mind that the, the structure of the Democrat, of the Senate on its own is profoundly undemocratic. Uh, The Senate concentrates political power in a small subset of states that are much whiter, much more rural, much more conservative than the rest of the country. There's a sense in which there is systemic racism built into the very structure of the Senate, and that is taken to an extreme by the filibuster.
0: But you would rather have Joe Manchin in the Senate than a Republican, correct?
1: Of course. Of course. But I, I feel like he... He can represent his district without defending a filibuster that sabotages uh, Democratic government.
0: Unless he's made the determination, and I don't know, and I'm not, I'm not polled in West Virginia, unless he's made a determination among others that you know, sort of the, the, the slowing down aspect of the filibuster, and by the way, on the substance, I agree with you with respect to the filibuster. I'm just trying to analyze his thinking and the rationale there. If he's made a determination... That the constituents of his state, you know, on a host of issues believe a certain thing, and on this issue believe, whether it's principled or not, or erroneous or not, that the filibuster should remain. That, you know, it is, in in a sense, a reflection of the views of his state. Um, or or maybe he's, like some people have suggested, you know, occupying a particular you know place in that state as somebody who from time to time makes angry Democrats so that it makes them more palatable to the overwhelming majority of conservatives in his state. I don't know. But I, I just wonder sometimes how he thinks about it and how other people should think about it.
1: Look, the, it, it seems to me Senator Manchin has a misguided, romanticized vision of the filibuster as the last best hope for bipartisanship. The, the filibuster has not given us more bipartisanship. It's given us nothing but gridlock. It, it empowers the extremists. Right. Any senator, no matter how extreme in their views, can filibuster any piece of legislation. Can subject any piece of legislation to a sixty-vote threshold. And keep in mind, you know, Senator Manchin came out against H.R. one and I or S. one and I and I. He's entitled to his view, uh, and then he put forward an alternative in good faith, only to have it rejected immediately by the Republican. Like if, if you're a Republican and you have the power to sabotage Democratic legislation, you have no incentive to negotiate on an issue like voting rights.
0: You've called yourself a pragmatic progressive?
1: Yeah, I never and let progressive purity be the enemy of progress.
0: <laughs> and and you point to a figure who you put into that category, Ted Kennedy. Is he among your principal political role models?
1: He's one of the greatest legislators ever to serve in the history of the... United States Congress.
0: And what made him great, in your, in your mind?
1: He was a prolific legislator. And even though he had passionately held progressive principles and convictions, uh, he was always able and willing to build coalitions uh, in order to pass legislation. You know, there are some people who go to Washington, D.C. to be performers And then there are others who go to D.C. to be policymakers and problem solvers. And Ted Kennedy was the consummate policymaker. He was the consummate problem solver. Uh, He, to me, is the gold standard of legislative acumen. And the same can be said of of Lyndon Johnson.
0: Is there anyone in the House with whom you would not work on some principle?
1: There, There are extremists on the right who are who are odious to me. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Bogart, I think Representative Paul Gosser is holding events with white supremacists. Uh, that- so you've
0: picked my ex- exact three least favorites as, as, as well. Can I ask you an odd question before that? We get to the possibility of working with them. Because people may not understand, and, and maybe things have devolved even further from the time that I was working in the Senate, which is now a number of years ago. When you come across folks who you've just identified who you find odious, that's your word. Or when you come across people who may find that, have that view about you because of what you believe, do you shake each other's hands? I mean, you haven't been there a long time. Do you walk the other way? Do you smile and nod? What's the social atmosphere like, particularly in the wake of January 6th?
1: I tend to be a gracious person. I will greet whoever greets me. Actually, one of the first people to greet me during my freshman orientation was Madison Cawthorn and even though his views are radically different from mine, we often have, uh, mutually respectful conversations and exchange pleasantries. And, and so, so I'm capable of, you know, showing decency toward members of the opposing party. But there are some members who, who cross a line for me and Mr. Gosar in particular uh, should be ashamed of himself for openly affiliating with. A white nationalist.
0: So I want to go to some of the issues that are very important in the country and very important to you, I know. And we've touched on, on one of them already, and that's the issue of poverty. And I want to talk about this a little bit from the pragmatic, progressive standpoint, which is where you seem to be coming at this issue and other issues. And, and you mentioned in passing a few minutes ago, the child tax credit. If, if there's one thing that you thought would most remediate or mitigate poverty in the country? Would it be some version of that and a a more robust version of that? Or is there something else?
1: In my judgment, a permanent progressive child tax credit is the most powerful tool that we have for radically reducing poverty, in particular child poverty, in the United States. Child poverty costs our economy up to a trillion dollars every year. And lost productivity and lost economic growth. And, you know, Republicans often speak about the need to be individualistic and pull yourself by your own bootstraps and make the right choices, personal choices. But no child in America chose to be poor. You know, poverty is an accident of birth, but it's an accident of birth that has lifelong consequences. And it seems to me that we have an obligation to do everything we can to lift our children out of poverty and set them on an upward trajectory in life. You know, before the American Rescue Plan, the structure of the child tax credit was so regressive that it left behind a third of American children, the poorest children in America, about 27 million children. And no district was more left behind Then New York 15, the South Bronx, where two thirds of children were excluded from the full benefit of the child tax credit. And so the expansion of the child tax credit under the American rescue plan, which we passed back in March, cuts child poverty by 50%, not only in the Bronx, but elsewhere in the United States. And for me, it should, the central priority of the next infrastructure investment should be to make permanent the expansion of the child tax credit, because a permanent progressive child tax credit would be to families with children what Social Security has long been to senior citizens. Right? Without Social Security, up to forty percent of senior citizens would be languishing in poverty.
0: Now, w- when you advocate on behalf of these policies and issues, do you tend to stress the moral aspect of your position and how in, in a just and and fair country, that children, as you said a moment ago, don't choose their poverty. They can't be blamed for it. And so the right and righteous thing to do is to develop and enact these policies that help those folks. Or do you tend to argue, depending on who the person you're arguing about it with is, that it's pragmatically good for everyone and that the costs, like the the trillion dollar amount that you mentioned, that it's good for folks economically around the country otherwise because- The costs to society that you don't necessarily see and that people don't necessarily calculate and they downplay and ignore are such that this is well worth it and pays for itself overall? Which arguments do you focus on?
1: Both. For me, a permanent progressive child tax credit is both good economics and good morals. Like I evaluate policies in light of both moral values and empirical facts. You know, for me as a Pragmatic progressive, I set goals that are, reflect my moral values. But then, how I measure progress toward achieving those goals in the real world, that's a deeply empirical enterprise. So, I feel like you have to consider both.
0: Do you have that, that answer? Makes me ask the question Do you have a philosophy of what it means to be a congressman? Do you have a philosophy of politics or a philosophy of government? Or do you pragmatically look at each issue one by one and case by case so that you know, some overarching particular philosophy may apply one way when you're talking about poverty or a different way when you're talking about trade or something else? Do you, do you think about that or do you, do you take things one, one issue at a time?
1: Both. I don't mean to appear to be avoiding the question, but, but it's, it's both. Um, uh, I, I consider each and every issue on its own merits. The empirical facts and how it implicates the values that I hold dear. But at the, at the same time, I, you know, for me, the, I I think of myself as a progressive and progressivism is different from utopianism. The central value of progressivism is progress, which you can measure empirically in the real world. And so I try to advocate for policies that have been shown or known To create progress for the people I represent, that, that, you know, I feel like my obligation as an elected official is to do an enormous amount of good for an enormous number of people. You know, for me, we are judged, the quality of our lives is judged by the impact we have on others. And I often ask myself, what am I going to be remembered for? What is going to be said about me in my eulogy? What's going to be spoken about me in my or written about me in my obituary? Um, you know, those are the questions that I keep in mind.
0: Well, what would you like the first sentence to be then?
1: I want to be remembered as, a, as an advocate for the urban poor, as an advocate for poor people of color in the South Bronx, in public housing, and someone who, who never forgot where he came from, that even when I left the South Bronx, the South Bronx never left me, and that I never forgot my roots in public housing, which to me is the greatest safety net of deeply affordable housing in the United States.
0: My conversation with Richie Torres continues after this. You mentioned urban poverty. And I think you said earlier that urban poverty is different from rural poverty. So, My questions are one, Explain how it's different. And two, to the extent that they are both forms of poverty, do you find or do you have optimism that you can break common ground with or find common faith with people who represent rural poverty-stricken districts in the country to do something for both? Well,
1: the policies that I champion, like the Child Tax Credit, benefit those living in both rural America and urban America, right? The, The attempt to close the digital divide, which became even more glaring during COVID-19 benefits those living in rural America than and, and urban America. Um, you know, I speak more often about urban poverty because that's the reality in my district and that's my...
0: Yeah, there are no, no large farms, I don't believe, in the
1: 15th. Uh, there were more than a century ago, but no longer. Right, right. You know, I tend to speak about issues and champion causes through the prism of my lived experience. You know, I, I do not fit into the typical profile of a member of Congress. I do not have a college degree or a law degree. I do not have deep pockets or come from a political family. But I feel like the greatest contribution I make is the wisdom of lived experience. I draw on my lived experience as a poor kid from the Bronx to inform uh, the policies that I advocate for in the United States Congress. I feel like that's what distinguishes me from the average do member think, of Congress.
0: Do you think that progressives fight for, speak about, advocate for policies that help the middle class, the so-called middle class that we're always talking about and politicians are always talking about, that that happens at the expense of the urban and rural poor?
1: I, I often ask myself who, who gets to set the agenda, who, who gets to decide what qualifies as progressive or what ought to be the priorities of the progressive movement, because I find that the causes that generate the most retweets are often different from the practical bread and butter concerns of the people I represent in the South Bronx. So I I do feel like historically we have a system that overlooks the plight of the poor. And for me, there's no greater manifestation of systemic racism than racially concentrated poverty. Wherever you have racially concentrated poverty, you will have worse social outcomes in every aspect of society. Less public safety higher rates of addiction and mental illness, higher rates of violence. So for me, if if we're able to radically reduce racially concentrated poverty, we can produce benefits that reverberate across society.
0: You know, in thinking about speaking with you and preparing for this interview, what came to mind is, is my, I think is my favorite quote from Gandhi, which is not one that people usually recite. And... It's not about independence from Great Britain, but it's about some of these issues we've been talking about. And Gandhi once said, quote, there are people in the world so hungry that God cannot appear to them except in the form of bread. And then a more famous quote of his that is often recited where he said, a nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members. And so you know, the reason, one of the reasons I asked you the earlier question about morality versus uh, you know, pragmatism and economic effect is, you know, from my perspective, as a moral imperative, when you think about the quotes from Gandhi, when you think about the things that are happening in your district, it is in some ways more important, in some ways more important to the values of the country than, you know, some of the things that we do for the rich, certainly, and also for the middle class. Is that a a fair way of thinking about it? And is that going to get me in trouble?
1: I agree with you. I agree with you. I mean, I I spoke of the South Bronx as the essential congressional district of America. I feel even more deeply after COVID or during COVID that we are judged by how we treat the most essential among us. And, And take the subject of affordable housing, the essential workers of New York City have a right, a moral right to live, to afford to live in a city that cannot succeed and survive without them.
0: What about universal basic income? Where do you rank that in terms of the potential tools to eradicate or alleviate poverty?
1: We're, we're as close as, as we've ever been to UBI. Um, you know, think of the essential, the child tax credit is essentially...
0: It's a form of them.
1: ...a basic income for families with children. It's means test, but it's, it's expansive. Of a, of a, a not, it's close to a universal entitlement.
0: But can we talk about means testing for a moment? Because this is a thing I've been thinking about since college. I mean, what, you, you mentioned Social Security. Social Security is politically strong and, and and perhaps immortal because it's not means tested. Everyone gets their Social Security check, and there are rich people who don't need it. But there are people, depending on where on the spectrum you think they, uh, you know, necessity ends and and luxury begins, it makes it very very politically popular. And I wonder as as you think about some of these proposals, child tax credit universal basic income, and other things, on the one hand, it's much more expensive to give them to everybody. On the other hand, it has this other political benefit that I referred to. How do you think about that?
1: You have to approach it on a case-by-case basis, but I recognize that the broader the constituency for a program, the more staying power the program will have. Uh, And so one of the strengths of the child tax credit, the great strength of Social Security, is that it's either universal or widespread enough to be to, to implicate most families with children. And that, to me, is a net benefit. So I tend to favor broader safety nets that have more staying power in the long run.
0: And how important is the minimum wage? And what should the minimum wage be?
1: Uh, I mean, I, I support the, the attempt to, to establish $15 an hour as a national minimum wage.
0: But should it be higher than that? Is that, is that just the, sort of the, the, the least common denominator number? that maybe is attainable? Would you, would you make it
1: more? Well, want it to be a floor, not a ceiling. But there are <laughs> places where, in New, like New York State, where the minimum wage certainly could be higher.
0: And when small business people, or coalitions of business people, particularly small business people, say that will be ruinous, how do you argue against that?
1: Look, I, I never take those concerns lightly. Um, and I'm particularly sensitive to the plight of restaurants. Restaurants are the hardest businesses to run even in the best of times, even before the outbreak of COVID. But, you know, the critique of the minimum wage is often accompanied by apocalyptic predictions of mass unemployment that never come true. Uh, So I tend to be skeptical about the apocalyptic arguments against the minimum wage.
0: Part of the issue for lots of people, and you've been very open uh, and transparent about your own struggles, these have to do with mental health. And it's it's really extraordinary for folks who don't know this about you. You have disclosed publicly that you have struggled with depression and mental health uh, over the course of your life. Have you done that in part because it's it's something to get off your chest? Have you done it in part because it gives you some credibility in talking about these issues? Uh, And there's another thing I know you've said about it, that you get to be a member of Congress who is also... A real person. And people will I don't mean to use your words and you should you should describe it in the way that is correct for you that they look at you and respect you in a way they might not otherwise because you have talked about problems that you have had that maybe lots of other people have had and are scared about and are worried about speaking about publicly. How how do you think about both the disclosures that you have made publicly and how we can do better at treating mental health problems in this country?
1: You know, I've been open about my struggles with depression because it is an important part of who I am. And it explains an important part of what motivates me to be in public service. And it's important for elected officials to be authentic and accessible to the people we represent, to enable the people you represent to see their own struggles, their own lived experiences in your personal story. You know, I have said publicly that I take an antidepressant every day. I feel no shame in admitting it. It enables me to be a productive public servant in national politics. You know, 15 years ago, I had dropped out of college because I found myself struggling with depression. I was abusing substances. Uh, I even attempted suicide uh, because I felt as if the world around me had collapsed. And then seven years later, I became the youngest elected official in the largest city in America. And today I'm a United States congressman and I would not be alive today, let alone a member of Congress were it not for mental health treatment, which saved my life.
0: Amen to that. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times that you are not a graduate of college and people who listen to the show on a regular basis may know that this has been an issue that has been increasingly interesting to me uh, ever since I had Michael Sandel, my old philosophy professor in college, write a book called The Tyranny of Merit. And he talks about how progressives and Democrats in particular valorize college. And one of the reasons for this great divide, political divide in the country is not necessarily between ethnic or racial groups or, uh, you know, coasts and the, the heartland, but people who went to college and people who didn't go to college. Do you have a view as a sitting Democratic member of Congress about whether or not the Democratic Party pays too much attention to college and overemphasizes college when I think something like three-quarters or two-thirds of Americans don't go to college.
1: Uh, And let me be clear, I value education, which is different from college. You know, I do feel we have to rethink the notion that everyone must go to a four-year college. Everyone must go through four years of liberal education, learn Shakespeare, and then enter the workforce. It seems to me that there are some people who prefer, who may even be better suited to workforce development, apprenticeships, vocational schooling. And instead of imposing a one-size-fits-all model, instead of steering everyone in one direction, why not allow people the freedom and flexibility to choose the path that's right for them? You know, why not allow federal funding for higher education like a Pell Grant? to be every bit as available to an apprenticeship, to career and technical education as it is to conventional college education. You know, I'm reminded of a quote from Jardin Gardner who said that a society that tolerates shoddiness in philosophy but scorns excellence in plumbing will have neither good philosophy nor good plumbing, neither its pipes nor its theories will hold water. And for me, what matters is not what you do, but how well you do it. We ought to celebrate excellence in every form.
0: Do you have a view on the proposal by various people to forgive college debt and how that will play in the country?
1: You know, I am in favor of broad debt cancellation because the one7 the trillion dollars in student debt that weighs heavily on more than 40 million households uh, is a real drain on the American economy. I mean, if you have student debt, it has a distorting and delaying effect on the most important life choices. The decision about when to buy a home or when to open a business or when to form a family and have children, all of these decisions can be distorted by the overhang of of student debt. You know, there have been attempts to pursue narrow debt cancellation. Uh, There was the public service forgiveness program dating back to 2007, which said that if you committed 10 years of your life to public service or government uh, or not-for-profit, then you could qualify for student forgiveness. And in 2017, there were tens of thousands of people who applied for public service student forgiveness. But if I recall correctly, less than 100 actually received student forgiveness. So there were people who organized their career choices around the expectation of student debt forgiveness only to be effectively defrauded by the federal government. And 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 so I tend to favor broader debt cancellation programs because narrow debt cancellation has proven to be ineffective, as evidenced by the public service forgiveness program.
0: Before you go, I want to switch gears for a few minutes and talk about an issue and a topic that you have been outspoken on, and that is Israel and the sovereignty of Israel and Israel's right to defend itself. I can I ask you a preliminary question? Is, is the topic of Israel uh, at the forefront of people's minds in your district?
1: No. I mean, you know, most residents in the South Bronx are struggling to put food on the table and pay the rent. So their concerns right. are kitchen table.
0: So my first question, and we'll get into it in, in a moment, is you know how, how you think about the issues that you focus on, speak about, make an impact on, given that you have a constituency, and, and why this was important for you to talk about And then to make this a, you know, the great thing about doing a podcast is I can ask all sorts of questions that would have been objectionable in court because they're compound, but I can ask podcast guests. Were you surprised at the reaction you got from fellow progressives when you stood up for the right of Israel to defend itself?
1: No. Um, I mean, I've been, I've seen the extremism of the BDS movement as far back as 2014 when I was a city council member. I was invited to join a delegation to Israel in late 2014, early 2015. And I had never traveled abroad, so I took up the opportunity. And when I announced that I was going to Israel, I was taken aback by the overwhelming vitriol and hatred directed against me. Like People said, how dare you as an LGBTQ person of color travel to an apartheid state like Israel.
0: To what your retort was?
1: Uh, well, first, I reject the premise. And there was one encounter in particular that left an impression on me. Uh, there was an activist who had a shirt that read Queers for Palestine. And I remember approaching the activist and I asked her, what is your opinion of Hamas? And she said that Hamas is defending the liberation of the Palestinian people. And at that moment, I had an epiphany. You know, the fact that an LGBTQ activist could defend a terrorist organization that systematically and savagely murders LGBTQ people, that to me was as definitive a sign as any of the stupidity and absurdity and moral bankruptcy that BDS has inflicted on progressive politics.
0: How did that conversation end? That was the end of the conversation. (laughs) That was the end of the conversation. Let me ask you a broader question, but in the context of what you're talking about. Do you think that discussion, and I have my own negative view of this, do you think the the discussion about political issues, particularly sensitive political issues, has over time, and by over time I mean recent times, become less capable of nuance? And if so, why has that happened? Because you talk about nuance a lot.
1: There are multiple causes, but the single greatest short-term cause is social media. And in particular, Twitter, which has become a cesspool of extremism and, and, and anti-Semitism. We are facing an epistemic crisis in which Americans are operating not on facts, but on tweets and hashtags and infographics.
0: And also preferred outcomes. I feel like this is true in the area of my own expertise, the law, criminal law in particular, people want certain outcomes. And so any bit of evidence or theorizing or speculation in favor of their outcome, they like, otherwise, no. You
1: know, Jonathan Haidt often points out, You know, Jonathan Haidt, the moral psychologist, is a critic of Plato, who was the first to distinguish between reason and emotion. And, and I agree with Jonathan Haidt that Plato was wrong, that we do not operate purely or even primarily on reason. We tend to operate on emotions that motivate our reasoning. And there's no greater case study of motivated reasoning and confirmation bias than Twitter.
0: You said the following in speaking about your experiences on Israel uh, in a recent interview. I just want to read it back to you and then ask you to elaborate. And then I have a question quote, for me, it should be possible to speak out against the eviction of a Palestinian family without equating it to ethnic cleansing. It should be possible to constructively critique the policies and practices of the Israeli government without calling for the destruction of Israel itself. My issue, you said, is not criticism. My issue is the lack of nuance in the democratic socialist critique of Israel. What is often directed toward Israel is not criticism. It feels like hatred, end quote. Can you say something more about that?
1: My view is that the the deliberate use of hyperbolic rhetoric is aimed at inciting hatred for Israel rather than promoting peace between the Israelis and Palestinians. And promoting peace ought to be the end goal. Like for me, the principle here is a two state solution. I oppose. Settlements and annexation because it undermines a two state solution. But I also vehemently oppose the BDS movement because it undermines a two state solution.
0: Right. But you're not saying that, but people who criticize Israel and Israel's policies, particularly with respect to the Palestinians, that's not automatically anti Semitism, correct?
1: Constructive criticism of Israeli practices and policies is not only healthy it's morally necessary as it is against every country in the world
0: but you're taking the just to play devil's advocate for a moment you know might some people think that you are you know quick to take the position that critics are operating in bad faith even if they're using sometimes hyperbolic language but that they're doing it in good faith and maybe their their words or their language or their arguments are too strong and not nuanced but they have a reason to be upset. Is that fair or not?
1: I'm not questioning their faith. I'm questioning, I'm expressing concern not about their intent, which can be impossible to discern, but about the practical consequences. Like ideas and words have consequences. And in my view, you cannot incite hatred for the world's only Jewish state without ultimately inciting hatred for the Jewish community. And this is not a theoretical concern. We saw during the month of May, the amplification of anti-Zionism on Twitter lead to an outbreak of anti-Semitic violence. That was not a coincidence. The two are connected. And it's fair to say that all of us, especially those of us in elected office, ought to be mindful of the words we choose. You know, It should be possible to constructively critique Israeli practices and policies without delegitimizing Israel as a, as a Jewish state. Um, I would welcome constructive criticism, but incitement of hatred, inflammatory rhetoric is quite different from what I would regard as constructive criticism.
0: And you yourself have constructive criticism for Israel, correct?
1: Uh, annexation is, is, uh, is, is, is abhorrent to me. Um, the denial of uh, it's profoundly incompatible with Palestinian sovereignty and with the two-state solution, and I strongly oppose it. And I found Netanyahu to be an odious figure. He was the Donald Trump of Israel.
0: Well, do you think the current leader is, uh, is better?
1: The There's a sense in which in a, when you're analyzing a parliamentary democracy, you have to look at the broader coalition. I think the broader coalition is an improvement upon Netanyahu. Uh, I wish the Israeli government had a much more progressive prime minister, but, you know, an alternative to, to Netanyahu was certainly welcome.
0: Final question for you, sir. You've been very generous with your time. Something I didn't know until my team prepared a very thorough dossier on you. And I was, um, I smiled when I saw this. Could you tell the folks, and I presume that this is true, uh, how you got your first name?
1: So my mother was watching the movie La Bamba.
0: Great movie, by the way. I told my kids about it yesterday.
1: And she was inspired to name me after Richie Balance. So that's why my name includes a T. Normally, Richie is spelled without a T, R-I-C-H-I-E, as in Richie Rich. Uh, but I was named after Richie Balance. My twin brother was named after the Reuben sandwich. Uh, So I I, I infer from that that I'm the favorite son.
0: (laughs) Richie Valens, of course, very popular musician, died young uh, in a plane crash, along with Buddy Holly.
1: 17 years old. Are you musical? I I went into politics because I have no time.
0: (laughs) You didn't feel any sort of pressure from the origin story to become a, a musician singer of some sort?
1: If I had the talent, I would have, but, uh, okay. I have limit, I have to, you know, make the. I have to make, I have to play with the cards and delts. So
0: you've been very generous with your time. Congressman Richie, I was going to say Richie Valance. No Congressman Richie Torres. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your service and, and get back to work and fix a lot of stuff for us, please.
1: I appreciate it. And thank you for everything you do. Take care.
0: My conversation with Richie Torres continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week by reflecting on something that's pretty fundamental, and that is our democracy. And what we can do to improve it. And in particular, I'm talking about it and thinking about it because I participated in a panel last week that was organized by the Brennan Center for Justice and Protect Democracy and the Project on Government Oversight. And it got me thinking about various things, and I wanted to share some of the points made during that session. Some of you may know that I co-chaired a task force on democracy with former Governor Christy Todd Whitman. She was the former governor of New Jersey and the former EPA administrator and a lifelong Republican. And we propose various things in two reports to try to sort of codify some of the norms that have been trampled in recent years. And so on this panel, Governor Whitman and I were joined by Bob Bauer, the former Obama White House counsel, and a moderator, Hayes Brown from MSNBC, to talk about how we can go forward and make sure that our democracy functions better than it has. Are there things that need to be put into law as opposed to trusted to the honor system, which is how so many things have operated in the country To date, And among the proposals that we have offered and some of the proposals that are sitting around in Congress waiting to be passed are things like erecting a better wall between DOJ prosecutors and elected officials, requiring people who aspire to be president or vice president of the United States to disclose their tax returns, something that did not happen with respect to one of the candidates last time around, giving more teeth to ethics watchdogs, starting to apply conflicts of interest rules and principles to the president of the United States. Also, proposals to protect scientific integrity, which has come under fire and has been a problem, elucidated, I think, and crystallized most clearly because of the coronavirus pandemic. But so one of the questions that arose in this panel and that arises otherwise, is how do you convince people that these reforms are necessary? Obviously, lots of Democrats feel that they are because their view is that these norms were trampled by a Republican president, Donald Trump. But how do you persuade folks on both sides of the aisle to get some of these provisions passed? I guess there are two answers to that question, and they're worth thinking about. And the first, the answer I most often give, is, is sort of one of pragmatism. The people on both sides of the aisle have an interest in making sure that an executive branch member, up to and including the president, doesn't trample norms. Because if it happened now, it could happen again. As I said at the event, there's no law of nature or ideology or politics or psychology that says that some of those norms that were trampled by Donald Trump will not be trampled by a counterpart of his in the Democratic Party or an independent party, either at the state, local, or federal levels. You know, to the extent that legislation takes bipartisan support in either chamber to get passed, to the extent that folks who want to talk about these issues can make the point that this is not just about Donald Trump. This is not just about some particulars relating to that particular president. It's not even just about January 6th. It's about a degradation of politics and norms and the honor system that can be transgressed by anybody, Democratic or Republican. And it might seem far-fetched to some people on the progressive side, but to me it's not, that you could have somebody who decides to learn some of the lessons from Donald Trump about lying, about obfuscating, about attacking the press, about challenging the results of an election. There's nothing particularly ideological about any of that. And so you would think, on the principle of what's good for the goose, is good for the gander, Republicans also would want to employ and codify some of these safeguards and guardrails so that what Donald Trump did to the country cannot be done by anyone in the future. I, from time to time, talked about the philosophy of John Rawls, who has talked about the principle of evaluating policies and the propriety and fairness of policies from behind what he calls the veil of ignorance. And if you presume that veil in this hypothetical, and you don't know who's going to be in control... 4, 8, 12, 16 years from now. Could be a Democrat, could be a Republican, could be an Independent. I think people of good faith and right-mindedness would want to make sure that you had those safeguards in place. It may be the case that today, a lack of these rules advantages one side, but that won't necessarily be true in the future. So that's point one. Pragmatic appeal to folks to say, this can happen on the other side too. So do your best to fix democracy while you have the opportunity today. But there's a more high-minded reason as well, and that is, there's something about the institution of the presidency that deserves to be saved and not talked about in the partisan way that I just discussed it. Bob Bauer was asked the question, how would you suggest to Joe Biden that he should adopt some of these reforms? And it's an interesting question, because presidents like power, presidents of both parties, and proposals to limit power, limit accountability, are not things that generally executive branch officials embrace, and love. And Bob Bauer says that the president has to understand, and I think this president does, that he is himself not the office of the presidency. And that in some sense, he holds it as a custodian for presidents to come. So it's not all about him. It's about the future as well. And Bob's response got me thinking about not just the pragmatic arguments in favor of these reforms and shoring up our democracy, but also the moral imperative to do so. Because there's been something missing in a lot of discussion and debate in the last number of years, at least to my eye and my ear. We always ask, is it good for the party? Is it good for that person? Is it good for that person's political prospects? Is it better for the Democrats? Is it better for the Republicans? And what's missing is I think the more fundamental and important question. What is the right thing to do? Is it right that the Justice Department can be weaponized? Is it right that people can try to overturn an election? Not whether or not it can be used against you in the future, but is it right, sort of as a a priori matter, And one of the most distressing things about the last number of years to me, of course there's been the shift in norms, but to me also distressing has been the shift in even the rhetoric with which we talk about these questions. How often do you think in the last number of years that the first and most important question was actually asked? What is the right thing to do? As opposed to, does it help us politically? Does it help the Republican party? Does it help Donald Trump? Certainly I don't think Donald Trump was asking those questions. And maybe some of this is a little naive, and overly idealistic, but I've been thinking more and more about how we need leaders to return to the fundamental question, not whether it's good for your political standing, not whether it's good for your party's popularity, but whether the thing you're considering, the action you're thinking about taking, ask yourself whether it's right for the democracy and for the country. As we discussed on the panel, there are reasons to be you know, pessimistic about what can be accomplished. We had a period of reform some years ago after a corrupt administration known as the Nixon administration. And as Bob Bauer pointed out, and Judge Whitman pointed out, there was a coming together by people on both sides, Democrats and Republicans, to see what we could fix. And a lot of things were fixed, and there was a lot of accountability as well. We're not really seeing that just yet, but I have hope and confidence that if good people keep talking about it, keep proposing these things, keep lobbying their members of Congress to pass some of these laws, keep attention to it in the public square, that people will finally, ultimately, see what the right thing to do is for our country, and we can get along much better. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Richie Torres. If you like what we do, Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azalai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.